So when Paul is called on the carpet, he answers by rooting himself in a story. And I, I know for some of you who have been around for a while, um, you, you may uh, think, yeah, you know, Todd talks about that a lot, this whole business of story. You know, what, what's, what's going on there? Why is that so important? And I think it's because, as I've said before, we don't live out of little bits or fragments of data or even little fragments of doctrine uh, as true and as perfectly laid out as they might be. That is not how most people live. Most people live out of a sense of a story. And in fact, one way to think about sin is to think about it as it means living outside of or out of alignment with God's story. So if you think for a second, what are the kinds of stories? If you just think about you and your family and the people you know, I'll bet you know some people who their basic orienting story in life is security. And maybe that gets played out in terms of employment or health or money. And I get that. I mean, can't you get that? That for a lot of people, that's their basic operating system. It's just how can I find security? Maybe you know people, friends or family, for whom their basic operating uh, system is self-esteem. And maybe that gets played out in achievement or wealth or privilege or respect or whatever. Uh, I can fall into this one, just keeping it real. This, this could easily be my story. No stress. Like if I could just create a life that had no hassles, no deadlines, that would be perfect. No book deadlines, perfect. No frustrations, no demands on my life, perfect. I could easily fall into a story that said no stress. But as I've thought about it and, and looked around and, and, and tried to figure this out, I think probably the number one alternative story today, the one that's alternative to the one that Paul thought he was living in, is called Meeting My Needs. That's probably the number one story that people fall into is, is there some way to meet my needs? There was a recent Dear Abby that said uh, this, you know, somebody was writing into Dear Abby and was talking about uh, polyamory. You know what that is? Multiple loves. So this writer says, you know, polyamory and other forms of non-monogamous relationships are becoming more and more widely practiced and accepted as many individuals and couples find the limits of traditional marriage do not meet their needs. Aww. <laughs> what a bummer. You know, traditional marriage just doesn't quite do it for me. You know, I think I'm going to become Islamic and I can have four wives under certain laws and I can have, you know, more than four lives if I be a different kind of Islam. I mean, are you feeling me here? Gee, what a bummer. Traditional marriage just doesn't meet my needs. Well, let's think about this for a moment. What is so seductive about meeting your needs? Just think about it. What is the seduction there? What is it that's so powerful that will let people do almost anything to get their needs met? I mean, think about it. What's so really great about your needs being met? And is it really worth the anxiety, the fear, the worry, and the damaged relationships that come with it? I mean, these days, we really are willing to do just about anything to create a reality that feels good to us. Do you know that the number one Japanese pop star right now is a hologram? Did you hear me? The number one pop star right now in Japan is a hologram. Her name is Hatsune Miku. 
And you can go on YouTube and find these huge concerts, 10, 20, 30,000 people watching a hologram on stage. And now these days, when you like buy her songs on iTunes or whatever, you can get whatever form of Hatsui Miku you want. You can get a, her with a gentle voice or a sweet voice or a dark voice or a vivid voice, you know, whatever meets your needs. Or we've got, you know, the pop prophetess uh, Lady Gaga, you know. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Right? So just, you know, kind of leave me alone. I have needs that I'm trying to meet here, and I really can't help it. I was born this way. But think about it. I mean, I don't expect Lady Gaga to think about this stuff, but I do expect you to. <laughs> think about it. Why the privileging of birth? Now, I know that's a bit philosophical for a Sunday morning, but just hang with me for 20 seconds here. Why the privileging of birth? No one ever stops to ask that question. What's so big deal about the way you were born? No one ever stops to ask that. Because, you know, I've looked at Lady Gaga's song. I actually exegeted Lady Gaga's song. And uh, she references God in it. Well, what if that God that she referenced had pre-birth intentions for you before you were born? I mean, the psalmist, Jeremiah, lots of people in the Bible talk about how God had pre-birth intentions for people. Or think about it this way. If there is a God, as the song suggests, what about the choices we make after birth? Do they matter? Or is birth like controlling? Like, so does anything before we were born, any intentionality or God, or any work of God after we are born, does any of that matter, or are we just literally slaves to what we were when we were born? And so clearly what we see uh, in Paul here is, as he answers Felix is he doesn't feel like he's stuck with what he was born with. In fact, in Philippians 3, you know, there's a famous passage where Paul says, hey, I had every reason for confidence in the way I was born. And then, you know, he goes on talking about his privilege of Jewish birth. But he says this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I tried to work out of the way in which I was born. I didn't say, hey, sorry, God, I can't help you go be an apostle to the Gentiles. I was born a Jew. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Sorry, God, you got the wrong guy. I mean, if you want somebody to go preach to the Gentiles, find a Gentile. I'm a Jew. I was born this way. Look at my heritage. But Paul says, no, when I heard that God had something in mind for me after my birth, after the way I was born, then I said, okay, God, I'll count it all as loss. I'll count it as that everything that I was when I was born, I'll count it all as loss. In fact, I'll count it as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. So Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So that's the heart out of which Paul's speaking when he's answering Felix's attorney, the prosecuting attorney. When Paul stands up to answer that, he's decisively saying, my needs aren't driving me. Look at the very bottom of, I think it's the, the first reading in Acts, where Paul says, I do freely admit this, I serve and worship the very same God served and worshiped by all our ancestors. 
Paul says, I, I find myself now living in this story that's much bigger than me, that way transcends how I was born, that way transcends my needs. And, and I'm caught up now into this big thing, and this thing now is becoming definitive of who I am. So I embrace everything written in our scriptures. Now, you can't read that as sort of proof texting. Paul isn't saying that, you know, I kind of look back at what we now think of as the Old Testament, and I select little things that sort of help orient my life. He's saying, no, you know, he's saying something like this. You know that whole big story the Old Testament tells? That's the story that I'm living in, and that's what orients everything I'm doing. And he says, it's not just that the beginning of that story, but he says, I'm also anchored by what we now call eschatology, or the end of things. He's saying that I'm living between this huge story, the calling of Abraham, and the resurrection of Christ, which is the beginning of the resurrection for everybody. That's what I'm living in. And it's through that that he says, I keep a clear conscience. So what I want to suggest to you is that if you don't have a story to live in, then all you've got is how you were born, and good luck with that. But if you have this other big story that you're living in, then you know that there's the possibility of God working in us and through us to recreate us into what he's up to. So on what basis then is Paul thinking about this? The right track, some sort of virtual creation, and I think the answer to that is no. I think Paul is living decisively in a story. So I want to take a minute. I timed this at home. This will take three or four minutes, so I want you to just sit back and relax, and I want to tell you a story. You ready? Relax. Take a deep breath. Here we go. The story begins before creation, before space or time as we've come to know and experience them. It begins with the triune reality of one God in three persons. The triune God, being a person, possessed intentionality before anyone saw his intention outwardly expressed in the sun, the moon, the earth, or its swimming, walking, and flying creatures. At the pinnacle of creation are women and men. The first man and the first woman are given special status as the cooperative friends of God. Sin enters the picture, and all the it is good of creation is shattered, fractured, and broken. God then begins a cosmic recreation or restoration effort. At the front line of that effort is the calling of Abraham and the creation of him of the people of Israel. This new specially called people were to be God's servants on the earth, his friends, executing his plan to reclaim creation. Israel famously fails in their vocation. God sends prophets, priests, and kings to pull his people back into alignment with the story, but to no avail. This frustrating pattern continues up to the time of John the Baptist. But with the coming of John, things begin to shift. John prophesies that a new dawn, he called it the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, was emerging, and that someone was coming after him who would be the difference maker in bringing this about. Against all odds, against all biological realities, Jesus was born to a virgin, Mary. He apparently lives a normal childhood and becomes a man who works with building materials. Soon, everyone can see he's different. At first, he seems to be a prophet, but more. It was said of Jesus that no one, no rabbi, no prophet, had ever taught with his special kind of powerful authority. He seemed to be the wisest person ever, but there was more still. 
No one had ever seen the deeds of power Jesus accomplished. He stilled storms, raised the dead, and healed the sick. Demons even fled at his command. Soon, however, various religious and governmental authorities grew worried about Jesus' power and his influence over the common folk. Together, they, along with a betraying insider, arranged to have Jesus arrested, tried, beaten, berated, mocked, and crucified. Several times as this story unfolded, Jesus said that he laid down his life and died for our sins, for our forgiveness, for our regeneration, to reconciling us, to reconcile us to him, to lovingly and graciously bring us back into the story of God. More stunning than his virgin birth and his astonishing life was his reaction to death. Death could not hold him. The first Easter morning, the tomb burst open with life, with Jesus as the first of a new kind of humanity and us in, us in his death-defeating wake. Happily, joyfully, thankfully, there is no reasonable doubt about the resurrection of Jesus. He appeared to his friends and to 500 more. His first followers, the ones who captured and preserved for us his words and deed, echoed these facts. But before they could go public with this news, Jesus told them to wait for the promise of the Father, the capacity that would be given them to finally carry out the intention of God. Jesus, right before their eyes, then went back to the place from which he had come, to God and to God's sphere, to what we call heaven. Not long after, while Jesus' friends were gathered together in a room, the promise finally came. They were all filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They were given power, authority, and gifts to carry out their vocation as the new people of God. The Spirit was released in them to begin the process of character transformation so that they would not fail, as did their ancestors. They were given new animation, new energy, and a new orientation for all the various aspects of their lives. Now, why is that important? It's important because every human person, no matter how they were born, needs an anchor and an orientation. It's important because this is the next to last time you're going to hear from Paul in the book of Acts. One more time you'll hear him speak. But this is the penultimate. This is the next to last time that you're going to hear him speak. And when you hear him tell this story, when you hear him say, I'm living according to everything that is written in the scriptures, that's what he was alluding to. That story that I just told you. And so we're hearing for Paul the rock on which he stood, that which anchored his life. And what Paul's anxious to say is that he's not abandoning the faith of his ancestors, that he's penetrating to the very heart of it, but in a new way. As the gospel reading said, that everything written about Jesus and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The reason this is important is because what I've seen over and over and over again in the thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people that I've interacted with over the last decades is that for so many people, Christianity is an add-on to a life that's otherwise about security or self-esteem or meeting my needs, and it just never becomes the core operating system. And for Paul, we're seeing that for him, this was the core operating system. That for Paul, following Jesus was not an add-on to a life that he felt like he otherwise owned or that he could prioritize. For Paul, following Jesus was not just kind of an odd hobby tacked onto his life. 
Rather, Paul was in touch with what the psalmist said this morning, that God is the maker of heaven and earth, that he reigns, and he remains faithful forever. And it's in that sense, Paul says, that I find the meaning for my life. So what I want to say to you this morning, and I've tried to say many times and probably will keep saying, that a choice over what will anchor and orient your life and the outcomes that come out of it is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said this. If anyone desires to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For as the Amplified Bible have it, he, they must cleave steadfastly to me and conform wholly to my example in living. Well, that kind of lays it all out on the table, but it leaves at least a couple questions unanswered. How do we learn to say no to ourselves in a culture that says, unless you indulge yourself, you're a loser of the worst kind? What the song, I'm on the right track, baby, really means is, do what seems native to you. And the message of Jesus is, take what's native to you and die to it. And what is resurrected will be the part of you that's native, that's good and godly and glorious and will live on forever. But there are parts of us, the fallen parts of us that are native. See, what's wrong with I'm on the right track is, I mean, that would have been okay pre the fall. But after the fall, how you're born really has very little to do with the imagio dei, the imprint, the image of God on you. It's fallen, it's broken. Emotionally, psychologically, cognitively, physically, in every way possible, the fall affected everything. And so it's, it's just really, I, I mean, I think it's hollow on a lot of levels, but it's really hollow on the level of Christian spirituality to think, well, I was born this way. In fact, what Paul's trying to do, what this story is trying to do, what Jesus is trying to do, is help us answer a question that goes something like this. How do we forget ourselves in a culture that says pay attention, that paying attention to our needs, our wants, our desires, and our wishes is a really important thing to do? And again, Jesus has an answer to this. When he said, what kind of deal is it if you get everything you want, but lose yourself? What kind of deal is it if you get all of your needs met, but in the process of that, you lose yourself? And so Jesus asked this most penetrating of all questions, what could you ever trade your soul for? What kind of a deal is it, he said, if you'd get everything you want, but lose yourself, what could you ever trade your soul for? So are you trading your soul for something right now? If you just think about it just practically, no guilt, no shame, that doesn't work, just practically. Are you trading your soul for something right now? And if so, can you stop the trading process? Or has whatever alternate story you've been living in become so powerful, so so controlling that you can't And if you can't, your only hope is to switch stories. Now, that little story I read to you this morning, I I wrote for my upcoming book uh, on temptation, and it only took me a few minutes. It probably took me 15 minutes to just 
sit with my laptop and write out that story. But look at me. It's taken me decades to fit my thoughts, my feelings, my desires, and my intentions into that story. And it is an ongoing process. That story is just a beautiful little story. It took me three or four, 15 minutes to write it, three or four minutes to read it. But that story is the great cosmic story. And the challenge, the joy, the journey of Christian spirituality is to take our thoughts and feelings and desires and intentions and to fit them into that story. Because it becomes for us then a point of reference for our life as it was for Paul. It gives us a sense of direction for our life. It anchors our life. And it gives our life something to be attached to. So as we pause now for our time of reflection, you might just think, what is your story? What is the point of reference for your life? What gives it direction? What anchors your life? To what story is it attached?